Discord. All right. All right. So again, our topic for tonight is talking about romantic relationships, what it is, what it's not. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, the first time that I talked about these topics in college and whatnot, and I said, what is a romantic relationship? The first response was always marriage. It was when people legally and went before their community, uh, said their vows together, uh, usually made some commitment in their religious organization and, 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 and whatnot. But uh, we're recognizing that the notion of romantic love, the notion of partnership is changing fairly rapidly, especially with the younger generations that are coming up. Um, we, we recognize that, um, again, if we were to have done this class uh, 20, 30 years ago, the average age for, for marriage was around 21, 22. Uh, the, the average age today is around 27, 28. Um, in fact, a, a recent statistic I read that it's almost approaching to 28 and a half years. So even within uh, the last five years, we've seen an increase in, in people's uh, uh, wanting to get married or marriage. Um, we're also finding that a significantly lot a lot less individuals are choosing not to marry than in the past. The, the, uh, the marriage rate has been reduced by about 15% over about the last 15 years. And so we're seeing less and less uh, young people, especially getting married in the first place. And we're seeing an increase, it's about a 5% increase in the notion of what's called cohabitating. That means living with a romantic partner, but not going to the commitment level of a legal marriage. Um, now there's various factors that have uh, investigated this. Uh, again, uh, you know, if we talk about developmental psychology, we know that uh, individuals are maturing slower today than they were in the past. Uh, and that's not uh, to say that they're 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 not capable. It's just uh, we have longer periods of what you would call gestation, as you would say, into adulthood. That coming from the developmental perspective, the sociological perspective is we're seeing the loosening of of uh, cultural ties to the things about legal marriage and about family, about the whole notion here in the United States about the nuclear family with with um, uh, you know, a dad, mom, two and a half kids, a fence yard, all of those are loosening with, with um, the advent of, um, uh, again, uh, what we talked about this earlier in the semester, the advent of women being more successful in the workplace for one, for two, uh, not seeing the necessity given, given the, the increase of single family households, the need for a dual parent situation, uh, and a various other reasons that are being investigated. But the conclusion at the moment is um, that, that we really don't have a solid answer of why people are one, uh, a, a portion of the populations are choosing not to marry two, why the marriage age is getting older and older, and three, why uh, the individuals are choosing to cohabitate versus marry, given, you know, if you think about it beyond this, the notion of um, 
you know, the, the, the benefits of, of marriage, such as taxes and all those kinds of things. I think that uh, what it does come down to is I do agree with, with uh, sociologists. I, I apologize. I, I can't remember the name. But we have had a good number of uh, cohorts of populations that have gone through uh, the increase of divorces starting in the 1970s and, and seeing the effects of divorce and our society not responding to that quick enough to show how a separation can help it happen in a healthy way. So we had decades of marriages and divorces that just went really bad and really wrong and had very negative effects on, on a good portion of our population. That, that argument, uh, I think, holds a little bit of weight to it that people just don't want to go think that that is an inevitable process of romantic relationships and therefore fear the notion, okay, if I become this committed, we're going to have to go through the divorce process and that's just as bad and more expensive. Uh, but uh, as we will see is that um, there are things that we can do. There is some evidence of how we can keep relationships going in a healthy and loving way. And we'll go over a few of those tonight. Um, and so that's kind of where we're heading. So, uh, but as far as the definition of romantic love and why I labeled it this instead of marriage or intimate relationships is that this encapsulates two individuals who have a drive towards each other and a wanting for each other and another product of commitment. They want to be committed to each other's success in one arena, maybe family and children in another arena, uh, and, and those things. So it's that's what we're speaking about. But we can't. I don't think anymore we can label it marriage or 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 the like. So that's kind of why we're using this terminology. So. Uh, what is romantic love? At the video last week, we, we heard the word pair bonding. <laughs> I think scientists are very uncomfortable with the word love or caring or something like that. So we come up with these very dry terms. Pair bonding, though, is where we also can compare to our other species. Do we see this type of bonding within other species? And the truth is, is yes, uh, quite a few species do pair bond. Some of them bond for, uh, for a lifetime. Uh, some bond long enough to have the uh, offspring independent and sustainable, which we'll see some um, uh, evidence that humans may have that same type of biological propensity uh, uh, as far as when we see heightened divorce rates and those types of things. Um, we will go through, it's generally accepted that there's two phases of romantic love. There is the initiation, the intensity phase, and then there's a companion phase, and there's brain processes that are associated with both of those. Um, and, and I mentioned this last week, but it's, I think it's worth saying again to keep in mind that the areas of the brain that are involved in romantic love are the same areas of the brain that promote survival, breathing, um, <laughs> breathing, heart rate, hunger, thirst, all of those areas are, are associated with uh, um, uh, romantic love. And as uh, the video stated uh, last week, um, 
that one of the areas that is involved is one that is intensely involved in reward and um, uh, and, and, and pleasure. So keeping those areas of the mind, areas of the brain, as we go through this, it starts to make sense why um, romantic love can be ecstasy uh, at one point, such as eating a fine meal and desperately um, sad when, for example, we don't have access to food or water. It's the same areas that, that, that are played in this area, okay? There are two chemicals that are largely associated with romantic love and the attachment phase of romantic love. Um, one is oxytocin, the other one is dopamine. Oxytocin originally was a chemical that was produced that uh, we originally thought that it, it, and it does, it starts the production of breast milk in moms. But we also have found that if there's an absence of oxytocin, there's a lack of attachment between the mother and the child. And so this started off a revolution to see what oxytocin and a closely related chemical does as far as attachment. And oxytocin has become known as the attachment um, uh, chemical. Um, and, and what we have found is if there's large presence of oxytocin, there's a larger probability that the two individuals will become attached with each other. Uh, if anyone has uh, recently had an infant, you will notice that they, in the mom's IV, they're actually pumping oxytocin into the mom through an IV. And, um, and we can see that uh, very clearly. So, uh, and then we have dopamine. And, and uh, again, if we go back to the video from last week, we can see that uh, dopamine is the reward chemical. Um, and it is, it is responsible for, for rewarding our behaviors and the sense of pleasure that comes from uh, this. Now, what about the interaction though between oxytocin and dopamine as we're, as we're looking at this issue? Well, what we have found is that if, if dopamine is released before oxytocin, attachment won't take place. Basically what we have found kind of really needs to take place is we need a release of oxytocin and then we need a spike in dopamine um, because that rewards that attachment process, okay? And we think that this also explains some social behaviors that we see, for example, with men and more and more women with the idea of one night stands, okay? Uh, if you think about a, a one night stand, right? Um, or why, why in a lot of dates, guys wanna get right to the intimacy, right to the sexual parts of the relationship. Well, when we look at this, we see that when you get the excitement first and then try to build the relationship second, 
it lessens the chance that the two individuals or at least one of the individuals will become attached because you'll get a spike in dopamine and then maybe a spike in oxytocin, but that's not going to lead to attachment, okay? Uh, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, going back to uh, centuries of relationships and whatnot, sociologists and anthropologists have felt that this is a reason why courtship uh, had such a conservative method for the longest time. Because uh, this is why uh, we think a lot of societies and a lot of religions ban premarital sex or banned in, in some cultures, uh, even in the United States culture, there was a time period where um, you know, holding hands was not almost was not appropriate on a first date. And we think these cultural responses were due to this interaction between these two chemicals that, that, that culture and society was responding to. How do we get people to become attached to each other and really fall in love with each other? Okay. So, um, something to kind of take home. Uh, if you really want someone to be attached to you, if you want someone to fall for you, uh, it's good to kind of hold off on those things that pump dopamine, such as sexual or high, high, high impact activities for at least a little while. Um, uh, but if you want to stay away from someone getting attached to you, well, and, uh, up their dopamine before they get to know you would be the advice on that one. But I just wanted to bring this up because this is the interaction. We look at this, this last slide, the romantic love is a biological by experience event. Okay. We see the role of culture and society that has played on biology. And we can see how biology plays on whether or not we'll get attached or not. And some people who have been hurt in the past, who have gone through, through traumatic uh, events in their life uh, have learned that, hey, I can make sure that I don't get hurt again, uh, but still be able to go out and date by pumping with excitement in the beginning versus um, going into a relationship in the get to know you phase kind of approach. I think there's a lot more to be said on this. I don't think it's as simple as dopamine before oxytocin. But that's kind of where we are on that relationship right at the moment. All right. I noted that there are there, there's accepted that there's pretty much two phases to love. Okay. Uh, and the first one is what we call limerence, or it's the process of really falling in love with someone. It lasts uh, about uh, 18 months to three years. Um, um, and, and then we see changes in the individuals, but for that 18 months to about three years for the majority, um, we, we do as, as that video from last Tuesday expressed, they be, we become obsessed with them. It's almost an addiction that we have for that new person there. They invade our mind. They, they, they give us anxiety and we fears about rejection, but at the same time, feelings of ex ecstasy, while at the same time, sometimes there's the depression of withdrawal or being away from them, okay? And again, 
we see chemistry and biology coming into this. Um, uh, the major chemical that the brain naturally releases during this phase is an amphetamine um, uh, uh, called a uh, phenethylamine. Sorry, I can't say it very well. I'm not a I'm not a chemist, but it's an amphetamine that the brain produces. And if you think about what amphetamine is, if you think about things like methamphetamine and the amphetamine, is it gives us that exhilarating feeling, that that excitement feeling. But as if you know anybody who has been on an amphetamine, it also gives us a paranoia uh, that we're constantly worried about where this relationship is going to go, whether the person is going to leave us, are they cheating on us, are they doing all of these other things. Um, and, and just as, as uh, the video uh, suggested last week, that it is very much like addiction, and in fact, there are people who become addicted to this phase of love, meaning that in about 18 to three months, they tend to dump the person and immediately get into another relationship. And uh, some psychologists and some neurobiologists uh, uh, and psychologists argue that if we were to measure the amphetamine release, it really times with when a person some of the some individuals will dump and get into another relationship on a consistent basis. So it's not only an addictive stage, you can become addicted to it according to some research. Okay, this phase again uh, lasts about 18 to three years, uh, which according to Fisk, uh, withdrawal often leads to the fourth year heightened in divorce. And this is one of the things that, 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 that we have to note between this phase and the second phase, uh, the majority of divorces that occur in individuals, not all, the majority occurs in the fourth year of a relationship. And this is associated with the changes in brain chemistry within the brain from going having an amphetamine to what we'll see in this phase of love, which is called the companion phase, the brain stops to produce amphetamine and starts to produce a natural opioid, okay? And this opioid, instead of making us feel exhilaration and excitement, plus the paranoia, instead it makes us feel uh, more content and reduced anxiety. But unfortunately, what I think is unfortunate about this is that a lot of people in our culture associate intimate romantic love with that need of, of intense intimacy. And during this transition, you're going from that intensity, so you're not meeting the cultural expectation of what romantic love is defined in our movies and in our, our popular culture, but it's changing and evolving into more of a companion level of, of, of engagement. So this stage is, uh, uh, um, <laughs> is characterized by things more, instead of more physical intimacy, more emotional intimacy, a deeper affection for each other, a deeper attachment for each other. 
uh, things like the sexual interest and obsession with each other start to wane and interdependence, this idea that I can rely on you, you can rely on me starts to develop higher. Instead of re relishing those high intense emotional moments, we start to uh, relish things like shared meals, joint slumber, slumber developing an e and developing an easy acceptance for each other's. Now, one of the, the mistakes that is often made in this phase is that because the anxiety wanes, um, people and more contentment occurs, people think that their relationship is at a moment of stability, okay? And this is often one of the mistakes that a lot of people make getting into relationships. Uh, when we look at the clinical literature, this tends to be a very common theme uh, with people who break up or, or, or from, from a marriage is that people change. We all change. Um, and we recognize we change. Um, but the thing that people stop to expect, especially when we get to this phase of the relationship, is we assume that a relationship is a rock. It is an island. It's something unmovable. But the problem is, is that we have this psychological idea that the relationship is stable and is a rock, but as two individuals, we're changing, we're evolving, we're learning new things, we're experiencing new events. And uh, to put it best to people who end up getting divorced after between 10 to 20 years, it's very commonly described as I woke up one morning and I didn't recognize the person sleeping next to me. They just weren't who they were when our relationship developed and became stable. They failed to recognize that they changed and so did their relationship. And in fact, uh, I, I apologize, I'm having a hard time with names tonight. Probably one of the most well-respected people in uh, the intimate relationship genre and the studies and, and whatnot, uh, recognized that um, to have a long and successful relationship means falling in love with the same person over and over and over again. And that kind of comes to this point on the companion phase is that um, uh, when a relationship starts to stagnate, you have to fall in love again. And in fact, uh, in, in very common among uh, marriage counseling uh, is that the marriage counselor will often try to get the couple to try new things, to go on a cruise, to do something different on Saturday evenings, to uh, start doing date nights as an example. And the counselor is doing that very purposely because what the counselor is trying to do is get those two individuals to rediscover each other, to fall in love again, okay? Now I mentioned it is also during this phase where um, uh, we see a heightened divorce rate in that four years when, when amphetamine is going down, opioids are starting to uh, be, be um, uh, produced. And 
the, the, the argument behind this is, is an evolutionary bio, biological one uh, because uh, in theory, and I don't think this is in practice, in theory, by the time a child is around four to six years old, truly the notion that that child needs two parents um, uh, theoretically uh, isn't there because they can take care of themselves, they can go to school independently, uh, they, they can feed them, they, they, they have the self-care, they're not as expensive by this point. Um, um, uh, even though I don't know about that one, it depends on, well, anyways, um, they're not as expensive by this point. And so the necessity to have that dual parent and that dual caretaking role uh, biologically seems not to be there. That's the evolutionary expl explanation to that. Um, I think there's much more to be said about this when we're going from totally being addicted to each other to being uh, uh, just companion with each other. I think that plays a lot of roles. But I also think, again, going back to the clinical let literature, it does have a lot to do with couples thinking that their relationship would never change. It's the one thing that's supposed to be stable and set. Um, but that's not how life works. Um, I know that, uh, uh, I don't know if I've said this in this class, there's three guarantees in life, right? Uh, we're all going to die. That's a given, okay? Uh, number two, we're all going to pay taxes, no matter what. We can't avoid them. And number three, life is going to change. Things are going to change. And we mistakenly think uh, that, that relationships are not supposed to. Um, we do need to recognize the role of emotions in um, um, relationships. And uh, these three are called the, the destructors of relationships. Uh, the, this, is, this is the road to things like domestic violence um, um, dynamics. This is the road to um, nasty divorces and hatred towards each other. Um, and it's these three emotions that tend to play a role in when relationships go bad. Uh, one is anger and the second one is hate. Uh, um, uh, and, and when it comes to these two, anger has to do with disappointment. Anger has to do with not meeting expectations. Hate has to do with resentment. Feelings of I'm stuck here because of them kind of mindset. And then the other big three is romantic jealousy. Um, and I, I just want to point out this bullet point, sexual jealousy has been found across every culture to be a main motive for men to murder women, their spouses, their intimate partners. That's the primary reason that we've seen across cultures for men to, to kill their spouses. Um, and again, coming out of the, the, the intimate partner field and whatnot, um, that tended to be uh, the, 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 the biggest associative things when it came to severe violence, to, 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 to murder. And romantic jealousy 
does tend to be a large component of, of why relationships go wrong. So uh, the reason I, I want to present these big three is because these are going to lead down to a different road than what we want in a relationship. And we have to make sure that as a couple, that two individuals have to keep these things in check um, and, and, and realize when they're starting to develop in a relationship. Um, so those are the big three that lead relationships to really nasty endings. Um, but let's talk about what leads to really healthy endings. What leads to, for example, um, people who are in relationships for 30, 40 years and are still in love with each other, who still care for each other, and we can put them in MRI machines and those areas of romantic love in the brain are still flaring after 30, 40 years as, as was uh, noted by, by the video last week. What makes them different than uh, those who don't experience that, those who lose their love after uh, several years, okay? So I wanna talk about three comparison groups, okay? Comparison group number one are people who are in a relationship for 30, 40 years and are still madly in love with each other. To the other comparison groups are people who are in a relationship for 30, 40 years and they found that they make good partners. So they tolerate each other. Maybe they're still friends, but the romantic part of it, the, the love part has kind of dissipated, it's gone, okay? And then the third comparison group is, is individuals who um, um, get divorced. They, they, they can't find that consistent love in their life. Now, there, there is many, many reasons why some relationships last and some don't. Um, we could look at things like uh, religion as an example, and, and we could look at things like uh, uh, social economic stability. We could look at um, all kinds of things that, um, that uh, really uh, are beneficial or correlates of why people can be together and stay together for a long time. Um, and it makes sense if you're financially healthy, if you're if you're, um, uh, if you're in a good community, um, all of those are healthy promotions for a healthy relationship. But in all of this research, we, we, we always wanna look at the, the focus, right? And in all of this research, there always continues to be three themes that come out. Um, and I might have already talked about this in this class, but you'll hear it again the three things um, uh, that consistently find themselves in this relationship between these comparison groups. The first theme that we find for these individuals is this notion of emotional security, okay? Now, emotional security is the ability to tell your partner anything you want without fear of reprisal, without fear of them getting angry, without fear of them laughing at you, without fear of them getting upset, okay? 
this is the person who is at work, let's say, or school, and uh, they have friends or coworkers come up and say, hey, uh, don't tell my wife this, or I couldn't tell my wife this, but X, Y, or Z, or the person who comes up and says, hey, you know, if my husband uh, heard me say this, he'd kill me. I've heard that before. Uh, this person that has emotional security doesn't understand that. They don't get it. They're like, why couldn't you tell your partner how you're feeling or what you're thinking or, or, or what's going on? This doesn't make sense to them. Okay. The second thing is, is that they tended to be best friends. Uh, if we go back to the adage of best friends, uh, a, a friend is someone who bails you out of jail. A best friend is someone who's sitting in jail with you. Um, and, and when I say best friends, don't make the mistake about they're, they're constantly with each other because we've noted that with these couples, they do have their own friends. Um, uh, she has hers, he has his. I'm using him and her because that's the majority of research has been done on that. So I'm using that uh, binary as just for illustration purposes, just so everyone knows. And so she goes and does things with her friends. He'll go do things with his friends. He, maybe he'll go to bowling night and she will go to um, uh, dance club night. I don't know. Um, and But with these couples, there was something unique that happened around 24 to 48 hours after they had their separate events from each other is that they would come back together within 24 to 48 hours and relive their individual experiences with each other. So she'll talk about what happened with the girls and how fun it was and how much he danced. And he would talk about how he bowled and which you know, guys are going through and, and what the guys talked about. And they would relive those events together, okay? We have actually found that those uh, couples who have, you know, guys' night and they're sacred or girls' night and those girls' nights are sacred, that the couples don't talk about them. Uh, that's, that, that actually has a pretty large correlate with divorce and separation. Uh, but in this notion, what we have found is that it's not that they don't have their own friends, it's not that they don't have their individual experiences, but as a couple, they relive those together. They experience them together again sometime, again, on average between 24 to 48 hours, okay? And then the last uh, thing is role formation. Role formation uh, in, in its most basic form is, is she does what she's good at, he does what he's good at, and what they suck at together, they do together. So, you know, uh, you know, if she's good at making the bed, he is good at washing the dishes, then they clean the living room together. And maybe that's that that that's her down point, or maybe it's the floors they don't neither one like, so they do those together. That's just an example uh, on the most basic level. But the majority of this research that was done was done with people who uh, came out of, if you think about the age group, came out of the 40s, 50s, early 60s, uh, where culturally there was a push for what's called the traditional nuclear family. 
where the man was the home, uh, uh, the, the, the home, <laughs> the breadwinner. He was uh, supposed to be in the dominant decision-making role. Uh, the female was uh, the homemaker, uh, stayed at home and was in the submissive, uh, kind of please your, your, your man role, okay? And a lot of people today uh, would say, well, that's not equal. That's not role formation as it's described because there should be an equality of power. There should be, and these people would stop you right there. And they would say, no, wait a minute. We do have an equality of power because a female would say, I wanted to be a homemaker. I wanted to stay home. I wanted a man to take care of me and I want to take care of him. And the man would say, I wanted to be the home, <laughs> the breadwinner. I want to be the king of my castle. And if you think about that, that is role formation. Where we see this, the, the, the traditional family going wrong is when uh, one person is not in that equal role. Maybe they didn't want to be the homemaker. Maybe they wanted to have a job. Maybe they wanted to have independence. But the, 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 the other partner repressed that and did not allow for that kind of formation of role, okay? So when we think about role formation, it's not necessarily equality as we would think about it today. It's about the wants and the desires and the qualities of the individuals that match with each other. And there are really incredible relationships where, where men are very dominant, females are very submissive, and other relationships where the female is very dominant and the male is very submissive, and they're completely and totally in love with each other because that's what both of them want and desire, and that's the role they wanted to fulfill in those relationships, okay? So that, those are the three uh, things that we consistently find in, in, in differentiating between people who are truly still in love after 30, 40 years versus those who tolerate each other or never really could find that consistent love in their life, all right? Um, we kind of already talked about this, but what is a toxic relationship? And, and we've already mentioned it before. We mentioned the three big emotions that lead to what we call a toxic relationship. Uh, in the earlier one, uh, the, the, the slide just before this, I mentioned when there's a power difference between the individuals, and I should say an unwanted power difference between individuals, this develops what we call a toxic relationship. And I kind of want to explain why it's called a toxic relationship instead of just a bad relationship or an explosive relationship, uh, because we use the term toxic because most toxins don't immediately erode and kill something. If we think about an acid put on a plate of metal, it's, most acids are not going to just burn right through that metal and create a hole. There are some, I've got to admit that, but most acids, it takes time to erode that metal and to get through it, all right? And this is why we use the term toxic, is that most relationships, I, I could just, I just want you to think about this. If uh, on the first date, 
let's say a uh, guy to girl and the guy goes to the girl and he says, you know what, here's the thing. I don't like sharing. Uh, probably in two or three years ago, I, I'll probably start getting very physical with you to kind of put you in your place because I don't like it when people act out um, or, or, or become needy. Um, you know, and, and you know what, I just, you have to act the way I want you to act, or this isn't going to work. Okay. I would imagine if that happened on date one, if that would have happened on date one, most people probably wouldn't even finish the date. Hopefully they would just leave. Um, uh, maybe there's a few sadistic people that would say, oh, I'm into that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the majority of people would say, no, nah. -uh. So how, how does toxic relationships work? And, and I'm gonna use analogy of the Stanley Milgram studies. It was explained in that uh, um, uh, Zimbardo video uh, in pretty good detail. So I'm not gonna go over it too, too, in too much detail, just as a reminder. The, the Milgram studies, if you remember, is when a person was supposed to be a teacher and when a student got an answer wrong, the teacher was supposed to hit a, 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 a thing on this electric box that would deliver a shock, okay? Um, and the shock started with 15 volts and ended with 450 volts, all right? Something that isn't very publicized in, in the Milgram study is he did, for a few participants, try to start out with 450 volts. He said, if, this, if, if the student gets it wrong, shoot them up with that 450 volts, chance of death. And what he found is, is that not a lot of people would start at this extreme level. In fact, um, I think there was like one. Um, but what made part of the Milgram studies um, intriguing is it started with 15 volts. And then there were switches on the board that increased the voltage by 15 volts, whoops. So you start off with 15, no, that's wrong, you switch 15. Then you go to 30, 45, and so on, clear up to 450. And as you remember with the Milgram studies, about two thirds of people would go up to the 450 uh, volts. Well, this is the best example about toxic relationships is they usually always start at 15 volts. A little criticism, maybe you should do your hair different. Um, uh, you know, I just little snide remarks. And then when that works, we go up to 30 volts. Ugh, I don't like who you're hanging out with. You don't need to do that. And then we go up to 45 and so on to the point that eventually after all of that, we hit 450 volts. Okay. And that's, that's how toxic relationships work. They don't start at 450 most. There's some that do, don't get me wrong. But most toxic relationships start at 15 volts and work their way up to 
that moment of, of pain. In fact, when we look at, for example, domestic violence relationships, the majority of domestic violence relationships, the first real physical uh, uh, interaction where law enforcement gets involved is around the second to third year of the relationship, okay? Where it has worked through this process from 15 to 450. And that's why we use the term toxic relationships is they don't necessarily start toxic, but through the progression of time, the relationship eventually erodes into something uh, uh, much more drastic, um, such as in this case, um, uh, domestic violence murder. And as we saw earlier, the biggest predictor of that again is those three toxins anger, sorry, anger, jealous, hate, and romantic jealousy. Okay, those are the three uh, major toxins that's going to reach to this point, okay? So again, um, when we're looking at our relationships, and this is, this is, so I mentioned before that being in a romantic relationship is about learning about a person or falling in love with the same person over and over and over. Uh, part of that falling in love is coming to a real assessment of where that relationship is, how that person is behaving towards you and you're behaving towards them. Because the only way to kind of stop a toxic relationship cycle is to go through that redefinition of a relationship not assuming that a relationship is stable and is a rock, but it is more like water. It changes just like we do. Okay. So I did just wanna mention just a few words about uh, divorce and separation. Uh, the first is a shift from property to human rights to equal treatment of women has allowed our society to recognize that one does not need to stay in a relationship that is harmful. And I just wanna mention, you know, the, the whole notion of marriage and maybe uh, another reason it's not necessarily um, uh, popular today is marriage started as marriage licenses. Uh, I think some states now call them marriage certificates, but uh, no one has ever really thought of why is a marriage license called a marriage license. Um, well, back in the day, <laughs> uh, when you went to go get your marriage license, you didn't go where you went today. Today, we go to the, the, the civil courts and uh, did, do it through a, the, the civil judicial system. Uh, but back in the day, we actually went to the same places we got deeds for land. Um, licenses in modern times, it would be, we would go to somewhere like the Department of Motor Vehicles if it was still the same today. Because what a marriage license, at least in Western culture, uh, was originally was a change of ownership, a change of ownership from father to husband. And the licensing was saying, okay, I purchased this, the, the, this is now basically my property. And that is how marriage originally developed in the civil area and legal area. Now, 
there should we should note there's separation between church marriages and and that but even on the church level we need to recognize that um the roman catholic religion uh who who, who marriages were once uh, sanctified by the pope uh, was basically a way of controlling the, the the who marries who and and who goes with who so even within religion we have to recognize there is this purchasing or this property um, transfer okay that has changed uh, i think it has changed because um, uh, relationships have changed if we look at uh, if you were to get married uh, 120 150 years ago you didn't necessarily get married because you fell in love with them. Uh, you married them because they were an economic benefit. They, they, it was a labor exchange between husband and wife. The notion that we, we get married because we've deeply fallen in love with each other is actually a re recently new thing ever since the industrial revolution, which loosened up our free time it didn't require family labor. We became more liquid in our assets. And so we could then seek out relationships for different reasons besides economic benefits or for labor purposes. So when we think about the shift that we've seen over the relationships, I should note that the idea of men having um, you know, a paramour, as you would say, um, that's why it was very much accepted uh, for many centuries in, 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 in especially Western culture, where this marriage thing uh, evolved from, is that it was very much accepted because the, the, the married couple, the, the, the wife and husband, were not necessarily married because they were emotionally, physically, uh, or even sexually attached with each other. So it was very common for especially men to have a paramour um, who, who they did have that emotional connection with. Um, if anybody's watched the play Hamilton, um, uh, it, it provides a very good, clear description of this idea where Alexander Hamilton uh, married uh, um, uh, 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 the youngest sister of a family, but he was deeply in love with the oldest sister. Um, and he maintained that emotional relationship with the oldest sister while maintaining the advantageous relationship with the younger sister. And it's an example, um, um, uh, and I, I just mentioned it because there's a play that came out a couple of years ago that, that uh, a lot of people have, have seen. So that's just an example of how things have changed. And today we've recognized that um, um, uh, relationships have shifted and that uh, we have better treatment for women, even though we have a lot of work to do with that. Um, and it recognizes that people don't need to stay in a relationship that is harmful to them. Okay. And we can see in the early 1980s where divorce rates have uh, gone from 50% up to uh, now, I think we're somewhere in approaching 60%. But I do need to bring social economics into this um, because we have often said that let, let's use the 50% mark for, for divorce. There is an economic uh, component to this is that we find that people who, um, uh, the, 
low social economic versus mid to high social economics, there is a difference in divorce rates. And the low social economic rates, is, uh, 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 the divorce tends to be around 78%. When we get to the mid to upper social economic statuses, we see the divorce rate go down to about 40%, okay? Now, why, why do we see this? Um, uh, sociologists really think it has to do with the pressure that is put on the relationship. If you're in those lower social economic statuses, um, work, uh, food, uh, access to housing, all of those add pressure onto those relationships. It's not that those people aren't capable or people in that, that, that economic status are not capable of having loving, caring relationships. It's just those relationships have a lot more pressure on them. They have much more things to worry about, things, and, and that can become overwhelming to the individuals. And often, again, when we go back to the big three, if you think about those pressures, what do they commonly produce? They commonly produce anger. They produce hate. And yes, I, romantic jealousy, the notion that I could do better or he might be able to do better or she might be able. And so if you think about the difference based on social economic status, it probably has more to do with the pressures that are put on those relationships, not necessarily uh, because they're a different type of individual. So there's exterior pressures that are put on, on individuals. I should also note that um, social connection is important to any relationship. We find that couples who have a strong friends, family and community and cultural connection tend to do better. And we find this, again, if we uh, use the term, what we call a mediating variable, okay? A mediating variable um, uh, mediates the relationship between two other variables. So I mentioned divorce rates and, and, and low social economics, that there's an association between those two that uh, there's a higher probability of being divorced if you're in low social economics. The mediating variable, what mediating variable means is it changes the, the strength of the relationship between two things, okay? And we find that pe people in low social economic statuses that are at that high risk of divorce because of economic pressures put on the family, if they have good friends, if they have strong families, if they're involved in their community and they have a sense of place through culture, we find that that reduces that relationship between economic status and divorce rates. So given this, we also know this across cultures, not even taking economic status into play, we find that uh, people who have these four social connections and they're strong and they're healthy and they're productive tend to fare better in romantic relationships than others. All right. I promised I was gonna keep it short for tonight, uh, but I went an hour anyways. 
Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to end with tonight. Does anybody 